as it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand, and we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings, because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Well, before I dive in this morning, I just want to give a welcome to our new grade six students who did not come up to the front and go to Kids Quest this morning, but are hanging out with us here this morning. We hope that you have a good time. And uh, speaking of uh, transitions, I thought I'd tell a little bit of a story. A couple of weekend, weekends ago, Melissa and I dropped our oldest child off at university. Uh, one started at McMaster in Hamilton, and so we drove our caravan down, packed full with goodies, and when we got up there, there were all these excited students welcoming us, and the, this guy comes up to us and he says, okay, you need to drive slowly, just follow my pace, as slow as I walk is how slow you need to drive, and I'm like, okay, so we're driving, and we kind of go around the bend, and all of a sudden, there's like a hundred students, and they're all wearing bright clothes, and they're jumping up and down, and they're cheering, and they're doing these chants, and they're like, chanting Owen's name, and they're like, get out of the car, and they're chanting these songs, and they're doing this mime where they're pretending to like pull my caravan down the hall, and it was just awesome. And then uh, Melissa and Owen get out, and they carry all of his luggage in and stuff like that, and this young guy comes up to the window, and he's like, well, Dad, he's like, how are you doing? Dropping your kid off at university. <laughs> I'm thinking, you're like 20. <laughs> Anyways, um, but I said, you know what? I said, you guys make it so much fun that actually I feel great. This is just exciting. Um, and it reminded me of that old saying, every new beginning comes from some other beginning's end. One stage of life ends, one season of life ends, and some new exciting stage begins. Just because something is difficult doesn't mean that it should be avoided. Kind of like the year that we've had around here. On Friday morning, I sent a letter out to our congregation, and most of you, anyone who has given your contact information would have received it, and I don't want to repeat everything that I wrote in that, except to say that I want to acknowledge and name the pain of the season that our communities walked through in 2018. It has not been easy by any stretch of the imagination. But this morning, I would like us to intentionally turn the page and begin a new chapter together. Is anyone ready to do that? 
We're ready to move forward together? Good. So we didn't have dancing and cheering and, and our, our staff wearing brightly colored, colored clothes as you walked in this morning. It wasn't quite that exciting. But I do want to start off with some really good news. And what better place to find good news than in the good book. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to look into the Bible. But I got this email a couple of weeks ago from YouVersion, which is the, the Bible app that I have on my phone. And I guess a couple of weeks ago I was reading my Bible somewhere and there must have been something that jumped out to me, so I, I bookmarked it. So I get this email and it says, congratulations, you've earned a badge. And I was like, wow, pat myself on the back for reading the Bible. It was great. So this is what we're going to do. Uh, I'm going to ask you to kind of put your bookmark in Romans, because this is where we're going to pack. For the, uh, we're going to plant ourselves for the month of September, uh, and we're going to begin in this book of Romans, this, starting this new academic year by, by turning to this letter that Paul wrote to all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. That's all of us, too. Loved by God, called to be saints. And we're going to explore what it means for us to belong to Jesus. We're going to pay attention to the, what the Bible reveals about who we are because of our faith in Christ and how a proper understanding of this identity sets us up for the vibrant and holy living that truly reflects the heart of God. And you may be sitting here saying, well, I haven't put my faith in Christ, so am I not included here? Well, no, you absolutely are, and I hope that becomes incredibly clear even through the course of this morning. We'd love you to journey with us here at Elevation. I discovered a new author this uh, summer, Karl-Uwe Knausgaard, and uh, there's a quote that I want to share that I think really sets this series up. He says, identity is being one thing and not the other. Identity is being one thing and not the other. And I want us to explore a few different elements, and, and I hope that this really rings true with us this, this month. Different elements of, of our identity. We're going to look at some of these key themes that come out of Romans chapters 3 to 8, discussing what it means for us to be reconciled to God. For us to be slaves to righteousness, to be called children of God, and to be more than conquerors, and how these descriptors of our identity really help shape and form the way we live. And if we can be clear about who we are when we start each day, well, the chances of living the life we've been created and called to live will be that much greater. Now, this time of year is when school begins. It's also when people who play competitive baseball try out for their new teams. And so uh, this, uh, Sophie's already done hers. She's made her team. Jude's tryouts start tomorrow, tomorrow night. And as the tryouts have begun, my mind goes back to the times when I was a head coach and I was responsible uh, for choosing players to be on my team. But by choosing players, you also have to reject players. And it's one of the, it's the worst things I've ever done. I can remember at Waterloo Park at the Diamond having these little 10-year-old boys come out from the outfield when I called their name, and they would stand there. And I would have to say either like, congratulations, you made the team and they're excited. Or, or I'd have to look this little boy in the face and say, I'm sorry, you didn't make the team. And literally tears, little lips quivering and tears coming down their eyes. And I'm like, I am the worst person in the city right now. This is as low as it gets. Well, our reading starts off this morning with Paul delivering some pretty harsh news to the church in Rome. He starts off with some real bad news. I want to read a couple of these verses again, coming from Romans chapter 3, verses 10 to 12. There's no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away, and they have become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Now, in fairness, these aren't Paul's words. It's not like he came up with all this negative talk. He's quoting from Psalm 14, Psalm 53, and Ecclesiastes 7, but he's pasting all of these negative comments together, and he kind of brings it all to a conclusion in verse 23. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 
He was setting the people up for some really good news, but he wanted to start with the bad news. And those of you who are like my age or older are probably familiar with this strategy. It's called the Romans Road. And if you want to explain salvation to someone, you want to explain Christian faith to someone, you just walk through these verses in Romans. And the first one you start with is this, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Well, I remember a few years ago, I was invited to share about uh, work-life balance at a, with a Bible college class in Peterborough, and I went there, and then we did a Q&A at the end, and one of the students put their hand up, and they said, we'd just be curious what you think of this. We've been taught that when you're sharing about faith with someone, you shouldn't talk about sin at the beginning. Uh, and I was like, well, that's really weird. And I actually kind of disagreed with them. And I said, well, I don't have a problem with that because I think we all know we're messed up. We all know we need help. We all know that we're screwed up in so many ways. So why not just name it, kind of set people free from the guilt of it, say it's all of us, and then talk about where we can go from there. But actually, as I was preparing this week, I thought about that interaction. And I thought maybe there was something that their professors were getting at that I didn't understand at the time. And this is what it was. Um, I think it might not be a bad strategy to stop talking about the bad stuff first because sometimes the first thing we hear is the only thing we hear. Case in point, literally, driving on Friday afternoon um, just north of Elmira through the country and I came across, I mean, beautiful countryside everywhere I go and then I see this sign at the side of the road and this is what it says in the beautiful countryside, except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. I pulled over and I jotted it down. I'm like, seriously, did I just see that sign, Right? Bad news. There's nothing else. That's all the sign says. It doesn't say, but don't worry about it. We got some good news for you. It just says, unless you repent, you will perish. And I thought, for some people, that's the only sign they're going to see. That's the message they're going to get. Now, no show of hands necessary. But how many of us, even after years or maybe decades of following Jesus, still feel like we fall short of the glory of God? Because that's the message that we heard maybe first, and it sticks with us. Sometimes the narrative gets stuck before it even gets going, and that's a serious problem. Baxter Kruger wrote a beautiful little book, and I'm going to quote from it a couple of times here this morning. He says, when we believe I am not to be the truth, we give it a place in time and space, a place in our lives and in the lives of others. Without necessarily knowing what we are doing, we give the lie a place in our thinking. We open ourselves up to its influence and our understanding is darkened. A breach is formed, a fatal incongruence between who we are in our union with Christ, accepted, loved, and included, and who we believe we are. Let's be careful to allow, avoid allowing the heaviness of our falling short to create this kind of a breach in us where we fail to fully embrace the good news that comes next. Because that wasn't a complete sentence. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all, the same all, are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Now this is really good news. If everyone falls short, then Paul says everyone is justified freely. There's this powerful story that Philip Yancey tells in his book, Rumors of Another World. He says, when the world sees grace in action, it falls silent. Nelson Mandela taught the world a lesson in grace when after emerging from prison after 27 years and being elected president of South Africa, he asked his jailer to join him in the inauguration platform. He then appointed Archbishop Desmond Tutu to lead an official government panel with the daunting name, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Mandela sought to diffuse the natural pattern of revenge that he had seen in so many countries where one oppressed race or tribe took control from another. For the next two and a half years, South Africans listened to reports of atrocities coming out of the TRC hearings. The rules were simple. If a white policeman or army officer voluntarily faced his accusers, confessed his crime, 
and fully acknowledged his guilt, he could not be tried and punished for that crime. Hardliners grumbled about the obvious injustice of letting criminals go free, but Mandela insisted that the country needed healing even more than it needed justice. He goes on to tell a story, and the details are too gruesome for me to read here in church, but he talks about a particular family. He talks about a police officer who had to stand in front of the commission because he had killed a young boy who was 18, and then eight years later, he returned to the same village and killed that boy's father. And so he had to sit there in the trial and face the the wife and the mother of this family. He shares, uh, he shares this story, and then he goes on to say, this is uh, the woman, this wife and mother speaking, Mr. Vranderbrook took all my family away from me, and I still have a lot of love to give. Twice a month, I would like for him to come to the ghetto and spend a day with me so I can be a mother to him. And I would like Mr. Vanderbrook to know that he is forgiven by God and that I forgive him too. I would like to embrace him so he can know my forgiveness is real. Yancey goes on to write, justice was not done in South Africa that day, nor in the entire country during the months of agonizing, agonizing procedures by the TRC. Something beyond justice took place. It's a beautiful story, but it's an echo of the story that Paul is telling us about in Romans. What happened in that courtroom was an echo of this good news. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Given. Christian faith is about receiving a gift. It's not winning something. It's not earning something. It's not deserving something. Baxter Kruger continues. He says, Christian faith is not something we do that gets us connected to God or gets us into the circle of life shared by the Father, Son, and Spirit. Jesus Christ has done that. Faith is not something that we do that moves us from the unforgiven column to the forgiven column. That was done in Jesus. Faith is not something we do that gets us reconciled, justified, included, adopted, redeemed, and saved. Jesus Christ has already done all of that. The fundamental character of Christian faith is that of discovery. Discovering that we are already embraced. Years ago, back in the early 2000s, Our Lady Peace put this song out called Innocent. And it was a great song. I just liked it for the musicality. But it was the lyrics that really haunted me. It was called We Are All Innocent. And there's this, as the, the bridge kind of leads into the chorus, it says, I remember feeling low. I remember losing hope. I remember all the feelings. And the day they stopped. And the thing that haunted me about this song was this, it's just this, this pronouncement of innocence on everyone. And I think it bothered me in a sense. I was like, how can you do that? And yet there's something about it that I just wanted to say, but there's something so right about this too. This is exactly what we should be saying. This is what we should be saying every Sunday in churches. We are all innocent. We are all forgiven. We are all loved. This is what we should be saying. I wanted so badly for people to experience the freedom of this innocence. And the only reason I can think that it mattered to me is that it mattered infinitely, infinitely more to God. That we know that we are forgiven and embraced and loved. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And it's hard for us to get our heads around this. I, this is a scene at the top from a show that Melissa and I watched. It's called Code Black. It's a medical drama. And there's every season, once or twice, they, they find themselves in a scenario, like one of the recent episodes we watched, uh, where a, a drunk driver hit uh, one of their medical team 
and they were both there in the operating room at the same time, in the ER room. And they're, they're working on the one, and they're working on the other, and they're arguing back and forth, why are we wasting our resources on this one? And then the head doctor says, because we are here to save lives. It doesn't matter what they did. It doesn't matter who they are. It doesn't matter who's wrong. We're here to save lives. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In another one of his letters, Paul writes, here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. Of whom I am the worst. What's our identity? Well, we fall short of the glory of God, and we've been justified freely by grace. The distance between God and ourselves has been bridged in Christ, and we're now invited to live by faith in a world marked by God's extravagant love for us. Thomas Merton writes that the church is called to keep alive on earth this irreplaceable climate of mercy, truth, and faith in which the creative and life-giving joy of reconciliation in Christ always not only remains possible, but is a continuous and ever-renewed actuality. As reconciled people, we get to share this good news with others. We'll come back to our role as reconcilers in a few weeks' time, but this morning, I want us to really think about this gift. So last weekend... Our son, who had just moved away to university, came home. He scheduled a FaceTime message with us at 5 o'clock on Sunday night, and then the doorbell rang, and Melissa goes to get the door, and there's Owen standing there with a bouquet of flowers. Like, come on. Come on. Just waterworks. He came home again this weekend, and he brought a gift as well. He brought a little bag, and he said, Dad, this one's for you. I'm like, awesome, what's this going to be? So I, I reach in the bag, and I pull out a meat bar. Not just one meat bar, but a whole pile of meat bars. And I'm still trying to figure out the significance of it or, or why this is my gift. No, I'm just kidding. It was a joke, and it was a funny one. But what is this gift that we have received from God? What is it? Well, Paul goes on in Romans 5, 1 and 2. He says, therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. So what is the gift? We have peace with God, and we stand in a place of grace. One more time from Baxter Kruger. To discover the truth about Jesus Christ and the truth about ourselves in him, and to believe it as truth, is to have a different rue stirred into being in our souls. Not one of fear and anxiety, but one of hope and peace and assurance. Not only discovering and learning the truth about ourselves, but believing it deep in our bones. Having peace with God is about the whole orientation of our lives, the posture we take when we get out of bed every day, the way we carry ourselves through the world, flowing out of a deep-seated knowledge that we are loved and that God is with us. This is what makes it possible for us to live hopeful lives, individually and as a community. We know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. But we can only know this after we've accepted the truth about who we are. I'm going to invite the band to come back up and those who are going to be serving communion this morning. I want to share one last line from Romans 5 as I kind of wrap up and lead us into a time of sharing this communion. Paul writes, in, and there are exclamation marks in the text, trying to trying to emphasize the excitement that is building in this passage. For if, he says, picture this, while we were still God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. So if that happened, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? It's like, it's not just about the 
being reconciled. It's about what happens with the rest of your life after you have been reconciled with God. And the language he used is saved. It's beautiful. Like I said earlier, if we can be clear about who we are when we start each day, the chances of living the life that we have been created and called to live will be that much greater. I'm going to invite us to, you to come forward uh, for communion this morning. I'm going to ask you to take the piece of the bread and the cup of juice representing Christ's body and blood. And I'm going to invite you to take that and return to your seats. This is an opportunity as we file down these aisles together to stand in solidarity with one another as forgiven and beloved people. Once everyone has had their chance to come through, Kristen Taylor is going to come back up and she's going to read something for us and help lead us in sharing the elements together. So. Themes of reconciliation this morning. I asked Brandon if he would like for me to share this poem, and he said yes, so I share it with you today. I marvel at how you sat down at the table with your enemy, how you offered him your body and blood without hesitation. You gave as if you knew his darkness would never swallow up your light, and you shared as if you were certain his betrayal could never steal away the power of your gift. You moved forward in time before death could catch you, and you claim the victory with bread and wine. Before a single tear was shed, before a single drop of blood could hit the ground, before the enemy could claim it, you offered your broken body willingly. How remarkable. With bread and wine, you turned every evil plan into a promise, claiming already your death as life for each person at that table a meal that has transcended time and space, stretching and expanding to reach even us in this room. How incredible. Before we ever met you in the garden, before we ever kissed you on the cheek, before we ever, before we ever led you up that hill, you gave freely what we needed most, you. Lord, as we take this bread, we remember that you are the bread of life. You feed our souls, you nourish our hearts, and you give us sustenance to run the race before us. We thank you with all of our hearts for the great price you paid when you, you were crucified on the cross for us. Let's take and eat. Lord, as we drink this juice, we remember that you are the giver of life. You are forgiveness. You bring deep peace to our souls and your love flows within us. Take and drink. Thank you, Lord, for your grace that is work in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. And now as you're ready, we'll meet in the gym to commune together. <laughs>